Welcome to Straight from the Author, a podcast that gives you a front row seat as leading authors discuss their books at a Warren Public Library. Thank you. Um, I thought I'd tell you a little bit about myself before we dive right into the presentation. Wicked Detroit came out in September of 2018, so it hasn't been around all that long. Um, I've been a Detroit historian uh, amateur for as long as I can remember. I've always been fascinated by the city's history. And um, I really sort of dove really far into it after I moved back from grad school. I moved back permanently in 2013. I'd spent, before that, six years on the East Coast at first Boston College and then the University of Connecticut for grad school, uh, which did me a whole lot of good uh, because there's a great demand, I'm sure you know, for people with master's degrees in Irish studies. <laughs> so I became the first tour director for the Detroit Bus Company, did that for a few years, designed their tour programs, uh, really dove into Detroit's history, learned quite a lot along the way. And then I freelanced for a few years. I've written for just about all our metro uh, Detroit publications on history as well as on Detroit's booze history. And that, uh, that got me into the topic of prohibition. Don't get too excited. We're not talking prohibition quite yet. Uh, this presentation is about 100 years too early for that. But I have been researching Detroit's prohibition history for about six years now. And that side project has turned into prohibitiondetroit.com, so go ahead and check that out. I've also got a book in the works on Detroit during Prohibition. It's called City on a Still. So that will be the next one up. Now, as far as this guy goes, oh, one final thing. I'm going to give a, a plug. Uh, as a volunteer, I'm a member of the board and also the tour director for Preservation Detroit. It's the city's oldest uh, and longest-serving preservation nonprofit. We've been given tours in Detroit for 30 years now. So I'm going to recommend you take a tour with us and feel free to stop up and get a brochure from me afterwards. All good money going to a nonprofit. So, Wicked Detroit. Uh, Wicked Detroit is the history of Detroit's first 200 years or so told through a series of biographies of bad guys. So we start with Cadillac, if that is his real name, who founded the city on a series of lies, wildly false claims and hoaxes. And the book goes all the way up to 1930, where we end that part uh, of Detroit's history uh, with a chapter on Charles Bowles, who is the first and so far only mayor in Detroit history to re be recalled from office. It took us less than nine months to kick him out. And considering that we let Kwame go all the way through, we did pretty good, you can tell. So I'm going to talk of three, about three of the ten characters that are in my book tonight. So we're going to talk about Joseph Campo, uh, Augustus Woodward, and General William Hull, who all arrived or hung out in Detroit after the immediate, uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Great Fire of 1805. So just to give you uh, some idea of what the city was like before the fire. So for the first hundred or so years, Detroit was founded in 1701 as a French trading port by Cadillac, as mentioned before, and a bunch of Jesuits who really didn't like him. Um, in 1805, Detroit had been first French, then British, and most recently, within the last 10 years, was an American territory. It was the center, or the capital, of the Michigan Territory, which was established, as it turns out, just a few days after the entire city burned down. So the city burned on um, July, June 11, 1805. Before that, it was pretty much a small hamlet. It was uh, a settlement of 
less than 600 people. At this point, mostly overwhelmingly still French descendants from those original settlers who had set up what were called ribbon farms. The ribbon farms are going to be really important as we move through and how the city was designed or not in that the ribbon farms were set up in the old French countryside tradition where each settler had a little plot of land that was about 250 yards wide by as much as 10 miles deep going along the front of the river. So if you ever drive downtown on Jefferson Avenue, you go from Atwater, uh, if you're on Atwater or Jefferson, you go to Bobian and, and all the other French streets, Bobie and Rivard. And those are about 250 yards wide, and they're all French names because that's where the original French ribbon farms were. So the alleyways in between, which later became our streets, were the ones dividing the farm property. And they went all the way back as far as 8, 9, 10 mile uh, in some cases. Colonel Hamtramck's original plot of land stretched all the way up to 10 mile road, which is why Hamtramck itself is called Hamtramck because that was originally from his plot of land. So we have these farmers, um, these small town folks who are living on the river, they are farming on the river, their lives are centered around the trade and the farms on the riverfront. So the downtown that we think of as it is now does not exist yet. Everyone has just these little houses dotted along the riverside. There's also a fort there, um, first French, then British for obviously defense purposes and where that ends up going is going to be important later on too. Now within 20 years of the Great Fire though the Erie Canal has been completed and Detroit is booming in population. It's becoming a center of trade in the Midwest because we are so well situated in between halfway between say the Great Plains and the forests of the North Woods where all the logs are coming from and the Erie Canal in the eastern coast of the United States. So this is a time of tremendous, tremendous change for the city of Detroit and the surrounding area, in fact, all of the Midwest and the Great Lakes. And then on June 11th, 1805, at about 9.30 in the morning, uh, the town baker, the one baker, uh, was enjoying a cigar or a pipe outside of a stables uh, in his cart. And they say, just like they blamed uh, the Great Chicago Fire on Mrs. O'Leary's cow, but no one can prove it, <laughs> They say he, in, he disposed of uh, his pipe ashes improperly. And the horse spooked and took off with a cart full of burning hay uh, and spread the fire all over time. Regardless, uh, by noon, the whole city was razed to the ground. Now, at this point, all the houses are made out of wood. There's one stone building, that's the church, and even that isn't entirely stone. Uh, and all that was left of the entire town of Detroit uh, was one chimney. Fortunately, it's nice weather because it's the middle of June and it wasn't raining like it is now. So everyone survived. Um, the citizens of the city banded together. They took their stuff, they ran out of town, away from the fort itself and towards the river. And in fact, a lot of people ended up dumping their possessions into the river to save them because they were worried the, the fire would spread too much. Because again, the Detroit that we're talking about is just this little area. Imagine from Cobo Hall to, gosh, I-75, to where I-75 starts. That's the extent of Detroit at this point. And uh, the fort is just a couple blocks north of that on what is, at the time, just about the highest hill in the city. You might have noticed Detroit's a little bit flat. 
So it's a small area. So these folks, they get away from it. You can see alongside the riverfront um, what everyone is watching and what everyone is seeing. So they get out, they survive, and then they say, okay, now what? But again, this is a group of maybe 600 people. Um, there is at this point one territorial judge in town, but he has no authority to actually do anything because Michigan had just been created as a territory just a few days before this. So um, I believe June 1st it was. And the territorial governor, William Hull, and the territorial uh, judge, one of the, the main territorial judges, are still on their way out from the East Coast. So they haven't even arrived yet. So there's a good few weeks where the people of the city of Detroit are just sitting around going, what are we going to do? How are we going to rebuild? Who gets what? Uh, so these three characters, we have Joseph Campo, who had lived in Detroit almost all of his life. Oh, I should, I should st uh, step back to this one. This is the official flag of the city of Detroit. It was technically designed in 1907, but it was based on uh, Detroit's motto, we hope for better things, it will arise from the ashes. In Latin, speramus meliora resurgit generibus. And this was designed to, to show the two women. Uh, one is looking back in grief at the great fire happening behind her, and her friend is pulling her towards the future, towards the great new city that will be rebuilt. So this has been our official flag and our official motto for all of that time. It was, uh, the, the Latin phrase was coined by Father Gabriel Richard, who was a huge influence to the early days of Detroit in the 19th century. Uh, he, he had the first printing press, he had the first newspaper, he had some of the very first schools in the city. He was hugely influential, and we don't talk about him too much because he was a good guy. We're talking about the bad guys. So these are the three bad guys uh, that we're going to talk about today. Now, they weren't entirely horrible people. We have Joseph Campo, who had been in Detroit since the 1760s. Uh, his family, his own grandfather, had actually come over in the first round of settlers that came over with Cadillac. We have uh, Augustus Woodward, and on the far right, we have William Hull. Woodward was the uh, territorial judge, Hull was the territorial governor, and Campo owned a great deal of the property in the city of Detroit. So, Joseph Campo, he comes from a merchant family. Uh, his, his, like I said, his grandfather had come over originally uh, with Cadillac to settle the area. And he and his family, there are Campo descendants coming out of the woodwork, even still in Detroit. Um, Joseph Campo alone had 12 children that survived to adult. So you can imagine after 1800 with 12 Campos, in addition to his siblings, there are a lot of Campos still around to this day. And part of the reason why Campo Avenue on the east side and in Hamtramck and downtown is called Campo. Joseph Campo ended up, by the time of his death, being worth $10 million. And that is not $10 million in now money. It's $10 million in 1863 money. So he was massively, massively wealthy. We'll get into why that happened. Uh, Augustus Woodward, territorial judge, uh, he and Hull were originally from the East Coast, Woodward from New York, and Hull from Connecticut. Hull was a revolutionary war hero. You may notice that Hull is on the older side. So Hull is older than Campo at this point and considerably older uh, than Woodward. In fact, Hull was fighting in the Revolutionary War by the, f by the time that Woodward was born. 
So this will start to influence their relationship with each other when they have to come to Detroit and build the city up from nothing. It did not go well for them. So first up, we have Joseph Campo. Joseph Campo, like I said, is an old, uh, from an old French fa family. Um, he's a landowner. It is significant to note that he was also a slave owner. In fact, slavery in Detroit uh, in those days before even, say, 1830, um, was not as uncommon as we think when it was still an American territory and when it was a British territory. Some of these wealthy, wealthy owners had what they called servants. And even after it had been outlawed by Woodward, um, they continued to claim these servants well into the 1830s. So it's important to keep that in mind when we think about the kinds of influences that happened in the 19th century in the city of Detroit. So Joseph Campos' motto was, always buy, never, never sell. So he would lease or he would rent, and he became essentially a slum landlord in the city of Detroit. Um, he would buy up property, he gobbled up property, but he never, ever, ever sold it. He would lease buildings and he would lease lands, and he took and kept very, very meticulous records uh, but we're not entirely sure how accurate those records were. So, um, Campo, just to give you a contemporary description of him, um, uh, Campo and his family owned much of the Côte de Nordiste, so the northeast side along the river, Jefferson Avenue, into Gro what is now Gross Point. Uh, so no the east, east side of the Detroit River was almost entirely owned by the old French settlers. As the Americans moved into the center of the city, Campo and the French settlers, the habitants, as they were called, uh, moved towards the fringes. So they moved downriver, which still has a very strong French influence, and they moved up to the Grosse Pointe area. So he owned, he owned a lot of that land, and he and the French habitants loved to party. And a lot of the folks, especially the Jesuit priests, were not impressed with the French love of partying. But Campo didn't care all that much because he was getting really, really rich, like I said, by buying property, leasing land, and leasing uh, homes, and never, ever, ever giving them up. Uh, he was also a big fan of lawsuits, up to and including the fact that he sued his own father-in-law. Uh, I can imagine how well that worked, but like I said, he and his wife had 12 children, so must not have bothered her too much. Uh, so he sued everybody, and uh, this got to the point where he sued and got into repeated battles uh, with Father Gabriel Richard. So Campo, in the aftermath of the Great Fire of 1805, sees his opportunity to take control of St. Anne's, which is the church, the Catholic church, the only church in town, and move that church up to his area. So he convinces a few friends and neighbors to go in with him on a plot of land called the Melcher Farm. And these 80 citizens band together and buy up all this land. And they present a petition to move St. Anne's into their backyard. So this is the opposite of not my backyard. They want it in their backyard. They want the status and the convenience of going to church right next door and owning the property that the church is on. Now, Father Gabriel Richard is not a fan of this. But what Father Gabriel Richard has against him is the place that he wants to move the church to from where it used to be to where it is now is the site of one of the cemeteries. It's one of the oldest cemeteries in the city of Detroit, and it's where essentially Cadillac Square is now. Um, so Cadillac or Campo and his buddies <coughs> take advantage of this to, to use that as their objection. So it's not that, that uh, Richard wants to keep this, the church in the center of town. 
No, 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 it's that he's going to desecrate these graves. Now, the man's a priest. He knows how to move bodies in the right way and in the respectful way. But at this point, lawsuits are going back and forth. Letters are flying back and forth to the territorial governors. And it gets to the point that uh, the church groundbreaking ceremony for the new St. Anne's, which is downtown because the archbishop says, no compo in your buddies. This is for the greater good of the whole town, not just you. The church is going to remain downtown. They storm into the groundbreaking ceremony, hooting and hollering, riding around on horses, grabbing shovels out of people's hands and disrupt this thing. Now, Father Gabriel Shard was a saint, but he was not a terribly patient man. So he excommunicates Joseph Campo and his buddies. In all, he excommunicates 14 citizens of the city of Detroit. This is huge, especially for the old French Catholic families that have been there for 100 years. You know, this means you're cast out of society. This means you're not going to heaven. Campo is not going to go to heaven when he dies with his wife and his children. So this is a big deal. The rest of the citizens of Detroit promptly cave, and they say, you know what, you're right. Uh, at this point, they were pretty unhappy with Campo anyway, because somewhere along the line, he managed to get every recorded deed property uh, in the area ceded over to him. Now, at this point, Cadillac had claimed that in the first two years that he was in Detroit, only two property deeds were in print and were recorded. So this is part of the problem when you're figuring out who goes where and who gets land. Uh, and this is also part of the challenge for these three folks in deciding who gets to have land, who gets to decide where the streets go, where the houses go. They're building a city from scratch. And the questions of who gets to have a say and who gets to put whose house where is significant for all three of them, and all three of them are approaching it differently. So Campo decides he's just going to own all of the deeds, whether they're real or not. Uh, at this point, um, he is angry at both Woodward and Hull um, for their supposed mistreatment of he and his uh, fellow citizens. So he writes a letter of complaint. He says, we appeal to the humanity of our fellow citizens to decide whether it would not advance in the highest degree a want of these humane and charitable qualities, which are and ought to be the peculiar characteristics of Christians, were we to abandon for the purpose of a common highway, the earth in whose bosom reposes the remains of our fathers, our mothers, and common kindred. O sympathy, O nature, where are thy godlike virtues by which the great author of the universe has distinguished man? In other words, don't let Gabriel Richard put the church downtown. It would be desecrating the graves of our parents. Um, of course, the territorial judges and powers that be pay zero attention to this because Campo has been excommunicated by this point. So his word does not exactly carry a whole lot of weight. He does spend the rest of his life um, fighting with Gabriel Richard in addition to fighting over where St. Anne's went. He did lose that one, although the, um, the property claims for uh, that patch of land uh, on the northeast or on the east side of the city uh, along Jefferson were still being um, argued over in courts. There was a Michigan Supreme Court as late as 1909. So the Campo family carried on great-great-great-great-granddad Joseph's tradition of lawsuits about property for a very, very long time. Now this fellow here is the guy that was brought in to survey the city of Detroit by Woodward and figure out who owns what. 
And Campo and his nephew, John R. Williams, uh, angered him so much that he just threw his hands up and said, I give up, I can't figure out who owns what, and he left. He just absolutely left the territory in disgust. So we have very incomplete surveys of the city of Detroit after the Great Fire because Campo and Williams and the old French folks were so good at obfuscating that the surveyor just gave up on them. So this brings us to Augustus Woodward. Oh, Campo, by the way, uh, was never taken back into the church. He died excommunicate, and you can still see his grave in the Protestant cemetery uh, at Elmwood Cemetery, down, uh, downtown area. It's just on the other side of the fence from the rest of the Campo families. There are about a zillion Campo graves in Mount Elliot, the Catholic cemetery, but Joseph is still buried in Elmwood. All right, so this brings us to Woodward, uh, who, by the way, claimed that Woodward Avenue, the main thoroughfare of the city and suburbs, was named such because it went towards the woods, not because it was named after himself. So Woodward, uh, Woodward was from an old, moneyed Dutch New York family. Uh, and in fact, his first name was not Augustus. We think it was Elijah. Uh, but he decided, just as Cadillac had done in the beginning, that that was not his name was not as grand as, as it should be. So he renamed himself Augustus, and we stuck with it. So uh, Augustus Woodward uh, was born in New York. His father lost his business and all of his money during the Revolutionary War because he was in loyal or yeah loyalist British territory, but he sided with the rebel Americans. So Augustus went off to school uh, with a rich Dutch uncle who basically paid his way through school. While he was in school and later in Washington, D.C. as a lawyer, he became friends with an eccentric, visionary young man named Thomas Jefferson. And he also met some folks who were designing the new city of Washington, D.C. So when he was in Washington, D.C., he's taking a look at uh, Pierre L'Enfant's design of Washington, D.C., modeled after Paris, and its grand spoke and wheel patterns with its leafy avenues, and, and beautiful parks and, and central spaces for everyone. So this has a huge influence on Woodward, and when Jefferson eventually appoints him territorial judge, and he heads out to the New Michigan Territory, he's got this in his mind. Now he shows up on June 30th, 1805, less than three weeks after the city has burned down. So he's got this in his head, and he says, I know, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm going to design our brand new grand city after, uh, after the grand circus parks in Paris and in Washington, D.C. And in fact, if you go to Washington, D.C., they do have the hub and wheel pattern still in Washington, D.C., because nobody messed with the plan and the pattern like the French settlers did in the city of Detroit. So one of the reasons we have Mr. Campo, who was as uh, thrilled with Woodward's plan as he was with Gabriel Richard's plan. So we have Campo is not a fan of Woodward and his grand plan. So as are the rest of the citizens. Because for one thing, Woodward's plan, you can see all along here, well, these are the ribbon farms. But these ribbon farms are supposed to go all the way across here. And so these room farms are 250 yards across. Now you've got a 150 yard avenue cutting right through the middle of your farm. And there's only 600 people in the, in the city. So literally half the width of your plot of land has to be crossed because it's some grand road design 
that no one's going to use except for the occasional cow. So Woodward's plan, which was to stretch all the way out to what is now Grand Boulevard, so that's what, seven and a half mile road, uh, at, at a time in which Detroit is the equivalent of five blocks deep, uh, it, and it's going to stretch all the way down to Monroe and Springwells. He's got this, you know, he's got this grand plan, and everyone says, absolutely not, that's a terrible idea, and just ignores him, and just keeps going on with what they're doing. So part of the reason for this is Woodward was a strange, strange, strange man. Uh, as according to a later biography, Silas Farmer, the judge was very tall with a sallow complexion and usually appeared in court with a long, loose overcoat or a swallow-tailed coat with brass buttons, a red cravat, a buff vest, which was always open and from which protruded an immense, immense mass of ruffles. These last, together with the broad ruffles at his wrists, were invariably soiled. His pantaloons hung in folds to his feet, meeting a pair of boots which were always well-greased. His hair received his special attention, and on court days gave evidence of the best efforts of the one tonsorial artist of the town. He was never known to be fully under the influence of liquor, but always kept a glass of brandy on the bench before him. In the evenings, he would go to Mac and Conant's store, which was on the north side of Jefferson Avenue, between Woodward Avenue and Griswold Street, and sit and talk and smoke his pipe and sip half a, half a pint of whiskey until it was gone. So this is Silas Farmer's nice way of saying Woodward was a sloppy drunk. Uh, there are a lot of stories of Woodward being on the bench drunk. At one point, he claimed he uh, had taken some bad cold medicine. Uh, he showed up to judge a very, very important case um, so drunk that he fell over three times. So he doesn't have a great reputation. He's seen as someone that's entirely impractical for this small little territory in this small little town because he's designing Parisian Grand Boulevards when the people of the city have been without a single building for three weeks. And in fact, it took well over a year and a half for a single building to be put up in Detroit. So the citizens of Detroit had to put up with Campo fighting with Gabriel Richard, with Woodward and his grand plans, um, and, and all of this, this displacement going on for a year and a half. So we see his original plan, what it would look like, um, and we see present day is what ended up happening, which is why it is such an absolute nightmare to drive around downtown Detroit. Because you have the old French ribbon farms that go like this, you know, east, west, north, south, very grid-like patterns. And on top of that is, you know, a little bit of a spoken wheel here, a little bit of a spoken wheel there, just all mishmashed on there and on top of each other. Imagine trying to build, uh, you know, houses in those teeny little triangles and, and, and trying to, you know, farm land and get water from the river in these tiny little plots. So it's a beautiful, wonderful grand plan that never happened. Uh, the only places in the city of Detroit you see a little remnant are Grand Circus Park and Cadillac Square. And even then, Cadillac Square just gets a tiny little chunk of one of the spoken wheels. So we never even get one full radiant of, of the original grand plan. So one other thing that Woodward did in deciding who gets this land uh, where all this stuff goes is as a judge, he's ruling on an important case about slavery. Now, Campo has decided who gets to have land by virtue of saying me and me only, and maybe the French people that I give it to and allow to lease it. Woodward takes a different approach uh, as a judge. 
Um, he has said um, every free person, every free man over the age of 17 who is in Detroit on the day of the fire gets two acres. This is tremendously generous. But who was free and who wasn't, who was and who wasn't in the city of Detroit is a little bit iffy because as we mentioned, there were not a whole lot of well-written and well-planned property deeds. So keeping track of who was and wasn't in the city. So one of the other things that he does in Detroit that has a, a, a long-standing um, legacy is he rules on the very tricky question of slavery and what is and isn't legal. Because in certain parts of the United States, obviously, slavery is still legal in the late 18th century. In British Canada, in some places, right across the river, slavery is still legal. So he gets this case, uh, Elizabeth Dennison and her siblings, who were enslaved people, and they had been included in the will of the, the person that owned their family, uh, her parents and her, her and her siblings. Now, in the original will, Elizabeth and her siblings, but not her parents, were freed. But the widow decided, nope, too valuable property, I'm not going to follow that. So instead, she wills the family on to uh, Elijah Brush, who is a judge in the city. Elijah Brush, being the nice guy that he is, um, says, you know what, I want to take it to court. He essentially took himself to court uh, because he wanted to force the case. He wanted to force the issue um, to see what Woodward would say and, and whether they could figure out what and when the slavery rules applied. So part of it was, part of the problem, and it, this gets incredibly complicated, I'm not going to go into too much detail, part of the problem was the original owners of Elizabeth and her family were British Canadians. So the laws are different over there. And somebody had ruled, Woodward ruled in 1796, that if you were British Canadian property and you came into Detroit, then you remained British Canadian property until you were 25, and then you were uh, emancipated. So she takes her brother and she says, enough of all of this stuff. If I'm living, if I'm a citizen living in British Canada, I'm free, by the way these laws work. So they take off. They force the question. When they come back, Woodward says, well, you know what? You came as a free person from British Canada, so you are now free. She goes on to amass a lot of wealth in the city of Detroit. She was one of the first, uh, she was the first person of color to own property in the city in what is now known as Greektown. In fact, there's a teeny tiny little plaque, I think it's on Monroe, um, around Brush. Uh, in Great Town, where her home once stood. She learned how to read and write. Uh, the Brush family actually was, was that they took her on as, as a servant, and Mr. Brush uh, taught her how to read and write. She did all his accounting for him, and she died uh, with a fair amount of property in Detroit and in Pontiac, and as part of her will, uh, she left funds to establish a church on Grosseal, which still stands today. So it's the first church in the United States to be built by an emancipated black woman. And it's right here in our city. Um, as it turns out, Woodward in this, in the ruling, um, you know, he was not a fan of slavery. He thought it was absolutely terrible, rightly so. So Woodward, in, in crafting these rulings and these decisions for the territory, decides, you know what? Free black people and formerly enslaved black people get to be property owners in the city. Um, free white people who were men, of course, um, who were here in the city before the fire, get to own property. So the character of Detroit and the way the farms are placed and the area is settled has a lot to do with Judge Woodward and his rulings. So our final person is his arch enemy, William Hull. 
Uh, William Hall was the territorial governor of Michigan and was uh, the first and only person to ever surrender an American city to an invading force. Uh, that's a different story that we get into in the book later on, but we're not talking about the War of 1812 right now. We're talking about the Fire of 1805. So he arrives in Detroit just one day after Augustus Woodward, and they immediately start fighting. They do not like each other. Um, Woodward is um, a combination of old Dutch money New York and, and American go-to-it settler. Uh, so he's a New Yorker. And Hall is from Boston. And um, I can tell you from my time in Boston to this day, those two groups don't get along very well. Hall is a generation ahead of Woodward. He was fighting in the Revolutionary War and was a Revolutionary War hero before Woodward was even born. Um, so he sees Woodward as this young upstart, and Woodward sees Hall as this um, decrepit old man. And in fact, he was, you know, he's 52 years old, which for the time, 52 years old, to, to trek out by foot and boat to the wilderness uh, in the middle, you know, a journey that, that, that happens during the winter and spring uh, at that age, you know, he was not thrilled with the assignment. In fact, um, Hall turned it down three times before they convinced him that they couldn't find anyone else willing to do it. So he takes his family and unsettles them and moves them out. And almost immediately after he gets there, as part of the creation of the territory of Michigan, uh, the Native American tribes that had been settled there and had uh, been stewards of the land in the area since time immemorial, uh, sign a treaty that essentially um, signs over all property rights to the territory of Michigan. Now, what they understood and how it was worded is still debated, um, whether certain tribes and certain leaders of the area really realized that they were giving up all land, um, essentially from, gosh, Port Austin, so the thumb all the way down, um, and all of Northwest Ohio. So they're essentially giving up any claim to ever live uh, and settle and hunt and fish on this land. Um, Obviously, the Americans did not treat them all that well, which leads later to tensions in uh, the War of 1812 and definitely comes back to bite Hull in the butt because many of the Native American tribes and groups around the area, um, frustrated with his poor treatment of them, sided with the British in the War of 1812 and were pivotal in convincing Hull to surrender the fort. So Hull decides Native Americans definitely don't get land. They get no part of this. But interestingly enough, oh, he also, um, here's, here's just an example of the volume of letters that go back and forth between Woodward and Hull complaining about each other to the powers that be. Woodward especially loves writing really, really long letters. And he's friends with Jefferson, so he's got an ear in the presidency. So the, the, just the dispatches that are going back and forth, and in fact, their arguments went on so much and for so long um, that, that at one point, Hull decided it was better to just pick up and go to Washington himself and explain himself in person. Uh, Woodward hears about this, and three weeks later, he picks up and heads off to Washington, too. So we're, and this is 1806. We're trying to rebuild the city here. The citizens of Detroit would like to get a building up, maybe a storehouse, maybe some tents we could live in, and Woodward and Hall can't stop arguing enough that they just pick up and leave us. 
So this is the kind of stuff that they're doing to each other. Um, one important thing to note is this, the placement of this fort. So that star pattern building, that is Fort Leno, uh, later Fort Detroit, um, that is situated on the top of this hill. Now, they could have put the fort anywhere they wanted to. And in fact, when Woodward decides the fort is going to go there, one thing that you might notice that is between the fort and the river itself is houses. So that the, the vast majority of the residential district of the city of Detroit is situated along the riverfront directly downhill from the fort. So when it comes to the War of 1812, Hull can't fire across the river into Canada because if he does, he'll kill his own citizens. So this is, I mean, and, and Woodward either knew what he was doing and didn't care or was really just that unaware of military tactics, that he placed the fort where it was in the residential area where it was. I suppose they could have evacuated uh, the citizens, but again, the French Detroiters wanted absolutely nothing to do with this. So, but again, what does Hull do? He arms the black citizens of Detroit, and the white citizens of Detroit, they just don't like this. So there's one of the complaints from anonymous citizens. One thing that all three of these, these, these leaders and these shapers of Detroit have in common is there are a lot of anonymous complaints to government officials about each one of them, and some of them uh, together as well. It, it must have been interesting to be in Washington, D.C. at this time of Detroit's history because you just... No, oh God, another letter from Detroit. Now what? What have they done now? Just nonstop. Yeah, so here's a letter from 1807. One of these citizens uh, uh, petitions about Woodward and Hull. Uh, it says, the history of William Hull and Augustus B. Woodward, since they took upon themselves the government of this territory, is a history of repeated injuries, abuses, and deceptions, all having a direct tendency to harass, distress, and impoverish if not absolutely to expel the present inhabitants and to accomplish private and sinister schemes. They have been guilty of unfeeling cruelty and barbarity by preventing those naked and homeless sufferers by the conflagration from accommodating themselves with buildings during one whole year and many of them during another year and several to this very day through their systematic measures of speculation. They have, by their intrigues and ridiculous maneuvers, sunk themselves into the deepest contempt, and they are actually, at this time, a reproach and byword among the people. So um, nobody liked them, <laughs> and with good reason. But they did, through their actions, shape Detroit as it is today, good or bad. Uh, they're fighting with the French citizens of the city of Detroit uh, and, and of the old French ribbon farms led to the layout that is downtown. Um, Woodward's ruling in favor of Elizabeth Dennison set a preference or a precedent for uh, freedom in the city of Detroit. And um, Hull's precedent for arming the black militia did as well. Campo, in keeping the French community intact as it was, has a lot to do with uh, the east side of the city and the homes there remaining intact. One of the slides we had was uh, a photo of one of the oldest homes in the city of Detroit, the Campo House, uh, which you can still see on Jefferson Avenue. It's very recognizable. So these three between them really did not just shape the physical characteristics of the city of Detroit, the cityscape and the plans, uh, but also the characteristics that would become so much more important uh, as the city increased. So when the Erie Canal opens up 
and our population starts to increase, we have a, 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 a melting pot, um, a diverse group of citizens by way, um, willingly or not, of what Woodward, Hull, and Campo have done. So by the time in 1835, when the territory of Michigan has 85,000 people, so in 30 years we went from about 500 to 85,000, um, by the time that happens and Michigan is ready to be a state, we already have a diverse group of um, French Catholics, of German Catholics and Protestants, uh, of Irish, they're already coming over uh, from there, uh, of black and white Americans of all levels of society, all levels of skill. So that's what they did to help Detroit and to shape Detroit as it is, good or bad, <laughs> wicked or not. Well, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Straight from the Author has been brought to you by My Warren. To hear more podcasts like this, visit mywarren.org. Again, that's miwarren.org.